Take a moment. I'm going to pray and then we'll get into this. So, um, God, thank you so much for uh, your word. Thank you for uh, church. Thank you for uh, the kind of church that uh, really does support and care for and love one another. Um, Lord, we're really grateful for that. Um, and Father, I pray for your help this morning as we look at this passage. So much going on in it um, and not even close to the amount of time we'd like to have to cover it all. Um, but I do pray that your spirit would speak to us through it. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we are taking uh, just a short break uh, from our series in the book of Acts for a few weeks. Um, and we're returning to a recurring series that we've done called uh, The Great, uh, Great Physician. So that's not, you can just go back to the last slide. We don't need, that's, that's not, there we go. There we go. That's okay. Um, and uh, so we're returning to uh, the series called The Great Physician. And the whole series uh, really comes out of an old book from one of my favorite authors, a guy named G. Campbell Morgan. Um, and I identify with the guy for lots of different ways, but he was British and lived in L.A. Um, and so we've lived in some of the same places, me and G. Campbell Morgan. Um, and he used to preach and teach around here in Los Angeles while he um, was on the faculty at Biola. And so, uh, but anyway, I came across this book a number of years ago called The Great Physician. And the point of the book is, he says that uh, in some ways, when Jesus comes across a person, he treats them the same as everyone else because everyone has a similar condition. You know, our hearts are broken. We have a longing for God. We have a longing to have our sins forgiven and to be renewed. And so in one way, when he comes to every single person, he comes to them in the exact same way. And he brings them the same truth. But G. Campbell Morgan's uh, whole study, the point of his whole study is to say, but he never, uh, he treats every single person as an individual. Um, and he actually treats every single person slightly differently. And he brings them what they need to hear. And he treats them the way they need to be treated. Much the same way that, you know, if you go to a doctor and you have the same illness as somebody else, they're going to treat you with the same knowledge and the same understanding of that illness, but they're going to have something specific for you. And he says, that's how Jesus treats us as our great physician. And so that's the kind of point of the series is we're looking at all these different episodes from the life of Jesus where he comes across an individual. And how does he treat them? And we can learn something from that. We can learn something from the generalities of that. But maybe the specifics of that might speak to your specific situation. So that's what we're doing in this series that we sort of come back to every now and again. There's about uh, 50 or 60 of them in the book. So, you know, we're not doing it all in one go. We're doing it three or four at a time. And many years from now, we'll finish it. Um, so anyway, today's passage actually takes place on a Sabbath. Uh, it says that down in verse 9 that it's the Sabbath. And uh, it's actually a Sabbath, you learn in verse 1, that is likely the day before the beginning of some kind of religious festival that's happening in Jerusalem. And that religious festival would have been a whole week of rest. And so that a whole week-long uh, time of rest, starting with a Sabbath and then a celebration, uh, where they would rest from their normal work. Um, and to really grasp what's happening in this passage, we need to know a little bit about what a Sabbath is. And so a Sabbath is a 24-hour period of rest. And in the Jewish tradition, where Jesus is living at this point in his life, and he is, uh, comes from a Jewish tradition, uh, the Sabbath is from sundown Friday until sundown on Saturday. And very specifically, during the Sabbath, there were 39 things that uh, eventually they'd come up with to say, in order to avoid doing any work on the Sabbath, don't do these 39 things. And some of those 39 things were like, if you do them, um, the punishment is, could be death. Um, that's how serious they got about it. Now, the Bible only really says you're not supposed to do any work. It doesn't give 39 prohibitions of what not to do on the Sabbath. But this tradition grew up around that sort of, they call it like a hedge around the law to make sure you didn't even come close to breaking the law. 
And so they came up with these 39 things that you couldn't do on the Sabbath. So this is the world that Jesus is living in. This is the world in which our story takes place, where on the Sabbath, you couldn't do these things. Um, There's still today a lot of traditions around the Sabbath. Uh, A friend of mine told me a story recently that she had married into a Jewish family. And I don't know if it was the first time, but it was one of the early times she was getting together for a Sabbath meal with some extended family. And she goes into this house and having a great time, enjoying the Sabbath. And at some point she needs to go to the restroom. And so she goes into the bathroom and the light switch is on. And so finishes what she's doing in there. And just out of normal habit, turns the light switch off. To which half the people in the, around the dinner table gasp. Like, because one of the prohibitions is you can't turn the lights on or off during the Sabbath. And so she's, now she's caused this whole family catastrophe of like, how are we going to, how can we use the bathroom because the lights are turned off? And so that's the kind of picture um, of what's going on in the world where Jesus is living. Um, that these things are taken very seriously. Um, and so for centuries, many Jews have debated over what a person can and can't do on the Sabbath. And also many Christians have debated not only what a person can or can't or should or shouldn't do on the Sabbath, but they've debated over what day of the week is the Sabbath. When should we do it? If we're going to do it, should we do it at all? Is it, do we have to do it? But if you cut through all the debates, what you find is that no matter what a person's view of Sabbath is, um, no matter what day they think it's on, no matter what they think you should and shouldn't do, the point of Sabbath is rest. That's the point of it. Um, if you cut through all of that, and in the Jewish tradition, there's actually a common greeting that is used on the Sabbath. Uh, sometimes, you know, maybe before or after a Sabbath meal or a Sabbath service, you'd say something like Shabbat Shalom, which literally translated is rest and peace. That's the most like kind of wooden translation you get to rest and peace. Uh, the word Shabbat or Sabbath meaning rest and the word Shalom meaning peace. Another way, by the way, the Bible describes Shalom or that word peace is actually the word wholeness. And so it's the sense that, that a person is whole, that they have everything they need, that they're not lacking in anything. And so peace is not just about being quiet, but about wholeness, about being whole, about having completeness in your life. And so Sabbath is about rest and it's about wholeness. Now, my guess is if you're like me, you rarely feel either whole or rested. Um, And you almost never feel both at the same time. So you might feel rested but not whole or whole but not rested, but almost never at the same time. Because there's always something missing to make you feel incomplete. There's not enough money. There's not enough uh, you're, you're, there's a relationship you want that you don't have or something wrong with children or your job isn't uh, doing what it should do or your lack of friendships or you've lost a friend or, or you don't have enough skills to get where you want in your career. You haven't built enough experiences. There's always something missing to make you feel incomplete. And there's also something always trying to steal your joy. It's busyness or sorry, your rest. It's busyness. It's sickness. It's being overworked. It's being overstressed. It's being overstimulated. It's a lack of discipline. And what's great about this passage is Jesus deals with both. He deals with both rest and wholeness. It's Shabbat Shalom. Um, But I do want to be upfront about your expectations. Because there's no promise at the end of this passage that you will be uh, both rested and whole in this life. So I'm just going to put that out there right now. There's no promise here that in this life... You know, just do these three things and you'll be rested and whole forever. There just isn't a promise like that. Um, Healings like what we're going to see in here and the kind of rest like what we're seeing in here, they're always meant just to give us a glimpse of heaven. 
just to give us a picture, a, a, a hoped picture, a promise to the Christian in the next life. And so there is no perfect rest, there's no complete wholeness in this life. But what is promised to the Christian are the first fruits of what is to come. Some rest. You can experience some rest today. You can experience some wholeness today. But ultimate rest, ultimate wholeness, that kind of completeness, that only comes in the life to come. So just want to manage your expectations. You're not walking away with three easy steps to being rested and whole. But what we do see in this passage, the way that Jesus deals particularly with this man, is he gives him only the first fruits, just a taster. Uh, And he does that in three distinct ways. Uh, First, he gives him rest from his loneliness. Second, rest from his impairments. And then thirdly, rest from punishment. Uh, We see all those three things. So let's first look at how he gives rest um, from loneliness. Uh, I don't know if you saw on the news this week, but on Tuesday, the Surgeon General, uh, he put out a study saying that the U.S. is facing a new epidemic. Um, And at first I was like, oh, great, fear-mongering from the media. This is wonderful. I can't wait to read this. Um, And then I read it, and I was like, how is loneliness an epidemic? But actually, it's really interesting what he says, um, because this isn't spread by coughing or sneezing. It's it's an epidemic of loneliness, and that's what we're facing as a a culture. And what he said in his 70-page report, which I didn't read all of it, but I did read quite a bit of it, uh, he says, loneliness is far more than just a bad feeling. It harms both individual and societal health. It is associated with a greater risk of cardiovascular disease, dementia, stroke, depression, anxiety, and premature death. And then get this, the mortality impact of being socially disconnected is similar to that caused by smoking up to 15 cigarettes a day. And I was like, that is bad. That is really bad. But I still was like, how is this an epidemic? Like, yes, people are lonely and these things happen. How is this an epidemic? Well, here's why. He says, in the scientific literature, it says, uh, in recent years, about one in two adults in America reported experiencing loneliness. Did you catch that? One in two. That's half. That's 50%. Uh, That number is way higher than the percentage of people that ever had COVID. Uh, And then he says, and that was before the COVID-19 pandemic cut off so many of us from friends, loved ones, and support systems exacerbating loneliness and isolation. So all those studies he said were, that they're looking at were, were done pre-COVID. And now we're living post that, where people have lost friendships, people have moved, people's whole support systems have moved out of state or they've moved out of state. And so now he's saying we're facing an epidemic that actually could lead to premature death in half of the country. And that's what's going on. Uh, and so therefore he says loneliness and isolation represent profound threats to our health and well-being. Um, now, Why am I telling you all that? It's because the man that Jesus meets is very clearly experiencing loneliness. On the surface, it seems counterintuitive to say that because he's likely surrounded by dozens, if not hundreds of people every single day. And almost certainly it's dozens, if not hundreds of the exact same people. He goes to the same place every day and sees the same people. Uh, Yet, this man tells Jesus not one of them are his friend. Take a look at verse 7. Jesus is in a conversation with him and he says, Sir, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. Now, we'll get to that stirring of the water thing in a little bit. That's a weird statement. 
And yet back in verse 2, it says that there was a large area around the pool. And in verse 3, it says that there are a great number of disabled people uh, who used to lie there, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. So not only are there a large number of people, but it's a large number of people who are experiencing the same thing as him. People that are like him. And yet, he says, I, I don't have a friend. And what that goes to show is a person can be surrounded by people, go to the same places every single day, every single week, see the same faces, but still be lonely. Loneliness is not about proximity to people. It's about disconnection. It's about having no one in your life who is kind. No one who respects you. No one who serves you. No one who is committed to you. And that certainly is this man's situation. He says, I have no one to help me. Now, we learn a couple more things about him. We learn in verse 4 that uh, he'd been paralyzed for 38 years. Uh, the word there uh, in verse 5 is the word invalid, and all that really means is he couldn't walk. That's really all we know about him. We don't even know his name. Um, we don't know if he was born that way, and he's 38 years old, or if it happened to him in his 20s, and he's 60 years old. We don't know. All we know is that he hasn't been able to walk for 38 years, and that he doesn't have a friend. Uh, think of that. 38 years of this man's life going every day to the same place, seeing the same people, and yet describing his situation as having no one to help him. And so that's his situation, paralyzed and lonely. Now, if that does not describe a lack of rest and wholeness in a person's life, I'm not sure what can. That is just an utter lack of rest and wholeness. But notice Jesus' method with him. This is extraordinary. Uh, So Jesus, he's come into town, uh, into Jerusalem for a festival. He actually lives up north in a region called Galilee. Uh, And it's likely he's come in um, a couple days before the festival starts. Um, and now it's the Sabbath. And Jesus enters into Jerusalem through a gate called the Sheep Gate in the northern part of the city. Now, we could potentially assume that as Jesus walks in, this man said something to Jesus as he walked by. But that's not what the text says. Look, look closely. Look at verse 6. It says, when Jesus saw him lying there. Now, the point here is to say that Jesus noticed him. And by the way, we find out later in the passage Uh, that this man had no idea who Jesus was. So it wasn't like he's like, hey, Jesus, me over here. He doesn't know who this man is. And so the point of this is that Jesus notices him. And this is actually part of a theme that runs through the entire Bible, and it's this. God pursues us. God pursues us. He comes to us. And you can see here, Jesus found this man. This man didn't find Jesus. Jesus found him. And so this is the principle. If you've found God in your life, it's not because you found him. It's because he first came and found you. All through the Bible, God is the initiator of the relationship. And that's what happens here. Jesus finds this man. But Jesus did more than just notice him. Uh, Look at verse 6. When Jesus saw him lying there, then what does it say? What's the next thing? He learned He learned. Uh, And what does he learn? He learned that he had been in this condition for a long time. Now, the point that John is making and how he's telling the story is that Jesus slowed down long enough, first of all, to even notice him, and secondly, to learn something about him. He slowed down and he learned something. Now, those two things, by the way, that's how you begin to end a person's loneliness. Remember that study from earlier about the loneliness epidemic? 
The study gives six pillars to overcoming loneliness and creating significant social connection uh, for those who are lonely. Um, and honestly, pillars number one and five, one through five are pretty much all about how the government can step in and help. But pillar number six, pillar number six is cultivate a culture of connection. And here's what that study says. A culture of connection is vital to creating the changes needed in society. In other words, if we're going to overcome loneliness, then we need to create a culture of connection. While formal programs and policies can be impactful, pillars number one to five, the informal practices of everyday life, the norms and culture of how we engage one another significantly influence social connection. Such a culture of connection rests on the core values of kindness, respect, service, and commitment to one another. In other words, here's what the Surgeon General is saying. He's saying what the Bible has said all along. The real way to overcome loneliness, it's not government programs, but the average person informally in their every single normal day life connecting with people through kindness, respect, service, and commitment. And this is exactly what we see Jesus doing here. With kindness, with respect. He comes, he asks the man a question, he shows him respect. And then he serves him. And then as we read on, we see he's actually committed to this man. And we'll see how that comes in the end. And he does this for a man who's been nothing but lonely for most of his life. And in doing so, what we see is Jesus bringing Sabbath rest into this man's loneliness. Now, to do this is also something every Christian is able to do and is called to do. It's a way that we can be, can be like Jesus out in the world. Uh, think about this. Every neighbor, and you know, every single one of your neighbor has, neighbors has a name. Uh, they, by the way, a neighbor could be a literal neighbor. Could be somebody who lives next door to you in your building uh, or on the street. Uh, could be a workmate, could be a friend, a random person you come across on the street, someone that you see in the shops uh, that you tend to visit frequently. Every single one of those is a neighbor by the Bible's definition. In fact, the Bible's definition is, uh, of a neighbor is anyone who has a need. That's the Bible's, you want to know who your neighbor is? The Bible's definition, anyone who has a need. I don't know anyone who doesn't have a need. Uh, and so every neighbor has a name and has a need. And so the call here is for the Christian to pursue connections with our neighbors to show love and to serve them in tangible ways. In other words, to know their names, to know their needs, to show kindness, to give respect, to serve, to, to be committed. Uh, and that's the picture that Jesus gives us here. That's his first method with this man, is to bring Sabbath rest from his loneliness. Uh, and then he shifts to bringing rest to his impairment. And this is part two, rest from impairment. Now, uh, we haven't really mentioned this yet, but the whole first part of the story takes place near a pool, um, uh, which is really, it's a very interesting place. We don't have a whole lot of time to get into it, but it's not like the pool that I went to uh, every day when I was a kid. When I was a kid, I went to a pool every day. Uh, my dad uh, was a, uh, taught uh, criminal justice at a college nearby. And in the summers, he had tons of free time because he just taught during the regular semesters. And so... Uh, he would work as a, a, a park district police officer. And he would always ask to get assigned to the water park. 
And so that when, you know, we were at my dad's house for the summer, he would just, every single day, we'd he'd load the three of us in the back of the police car uh, that had the lights and all the cage and everything on it. And we'd drive over to the water park and we were always like, let's put our hands behind our backs. Everyone thinks we got arrested. We're seven. <laughs> and so every day we'd go, we went to the water park every single day. So we were at this pool every single day. Now, the point of us going there was for fun. That's why we went there. Uh, that's not why this man went to the pool. Uh, and so we went every day, but for very different reasons. Uh, he went, actually, it says in here, with the hopes of being healed. That's why he went to the pool every single day. Um, and here's how we know that. Down at verse 7, he talks about wanting to get into the pool when the water is stirred. Now, what is he talking about? That is a weird thing to say. Um, you know, somebody going down there with a, with a giant spoon and stirring up the water, and he, that's like, you know, ancient whirlpool. Is that how they did it? I don't think so. Uh, actually, what he's referring to is a belief that many people had that this pool, uh, which is called Bethesda, had healing properties to it. Uh, it's not something that the Bible is affirming, by the way. It's just describing a belief that people had in that day. It's sort of like uh, throwing a penny into the fountain at the mall when you were a kid and making a wish. Um, which, by the way, I'm sure that it was the owners of the mall who got, malls who got together and like, spread this rumor as a way of just making easy money. Um, so it's sort of like that. Like it, that's the that's the the way that uh, people are thinking about it. It's, it's been this truth that it's like everybody believes this. Now the pool was likely a spring-fed pool, and from time to time, because of that, that meant that air bubbles would uh, come up out of the spring and they would stir up the waters. That's what the scholars seem to think is going on there. And again, that common belief, not something the Bible is saying is true, just something people believed, was that when that happened, if you were the first one in the pool when that happened then whatever ailment you had, whatever impairment, whatever brokenness, whatever sickness, that would be healed instantly. Now, again, I'm not saying that the Bible says that's true. It's just describing what people believed back then. And so that's what this man has in his mind. That's why he goes every day to the pool in the hopes that he might get in the water first if it's uh, stirred and then he could be healed. Um, and that's why uh, in verse 3, a great number of disabled people used to lie there, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. Uh, and so when Jesus meets this man, the pool is what they end up talking about. Jesus begins the friendship with this man by asking a question at the end of verse 6. He says, do you want to get well? Uh, some of the newer, other newer translations say you want to be healed. Some of the old translations actually say, do you want to be made whole? They're very similar to that idea of shalom. It's not the same word, but it's a similar idea. Do you want to be made whole? And remember, this is all happening on the Sabbath. It's an entire day that was leading up to an entire week in this particular situation of rest, of Shabbat Shalom, rest and wholeness. And so Jesus comes to this man, notices him, learns something about him, becomes his friend. And then he says, do you want to be made whole? And the man responds in verse seven by saying, essentially, yes, I want to get well. But it's impossible because I don't have anyone to help me down into the water. And now here's a picture of something. It's very subtle, but it's there. And I think we often treat Jesus this way. That Jesus comes and he says, you want to be well? You want to be made whole? And we're like, yeah, Jesus, if you could just help me with this next thing on my list. I'd love some help getting into the water. That water over there, that will save me. In other words, he's not looking at Jesus as, and we're not looking at Jesus as our salvation. He's looking at Jesus as just a little bit of help along the way. A little boost to his life. A little sort of Jesus' life improvement strategy. 
you know, and once Jesus helped him into the water, well, what need does he have for Jesus? And I, doesn't that just describe how you and I often treat him? And we need him for a little life improvement here and there, you know, for a season. But once we get what we want, then we don't have much need for him. Only for us, the water is just the next thing we need in life. You know, a partner, a move up the ladder, a family, getting over an illness, help out of a jam. Well, Jesus cuts right through all of that in verse 8. This is his method with him. So again, makes a friend with him, and then the guy's like, hey, can you help me get in the water? And Jesus is like, no, 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 let me show you what you actually mean. Verse 8. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. At once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and walked. Incredible. Now, here's what I want you to see in this. Look how utterly powerful and decisive this is. Like, the man's thinking, if I could just be the first one in the water when it's stirred, maybe, possibly, I'll be healed. And Jesus is like, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. It's decisive. It's powerful. And how unlike the help we often seek from Jesus, which is just temporary. Jesus, when he helps, he gives permanent help. Uh, because Jesus says three things. Here's what I mean by permanent help. Jesus says three things, three verbs uh, that for the last 38 years have been completely impossible for this man. Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. Those are three things he's not been able to do for 38 years. Uh, get up, stand up. He hasn't done that. You know, this is, this is by the way, a one-time imperative command. It's an imperative command that's authoritative. That's a crucial action. It's the parent saying, clean up your room. It's the drill sergeant saying, down and give me 20. It means right now. And so that's the first thing. He says, get up. The second thing, also an imperative command, pick up your mat. It's, it's as if to say, that thing that you've been lying on all these years, that thing that has been carrying you, now you carry it. You see the reversal? Now, the third, word, the third verb is very interesting. Because you would expect another imperative. Get up, pick up your mat, walk. But the third verb is that verb uh, in its original form means continual action. And so the other two, get up, pick up, those are one-time imperatives. This one is continuous action. This is get up, pick up, and keep walking. Continuously walk. Don't stop walking. Now, this is an amazing story. Jesus gives this man rest from his loneliness, and now he gives him rest from his impairment, continual rest from his impairment. But let's be, if you're like me, it leaves you asking a question. Because if you're like me, you read earlier on in the story that there were. Lots of people who came to this very same place every single day, all hoping for the same thing. And so the question is, why only this man? If there are dozens, maybe hundreds of other people lying around this pool, uh, hoping, wanting healing, why does Jesus only heal this man? Why doesn't he say, hey, everyone, you get up, you open your eyes, you start to speak, you hear again. Why doesn't he do that? Well, I think that's actually the point that John's trying to make by including this particular story about Jesus. 
Because we have other parts of, of the Gospels where it says Jesus healed many people. Like many people came to him and he healed everyone who came to him. But in this story, it's only one man amongst maybe hundreds. Why? He only heals the one. Why? What's he trying to say? And here's what I think he's saying with this. Uh, John, by the way, he, he doesn't write chronologically. He writes theologically. So you always have to ask, like, what, is he, what is it he's trying to say about God? About who he is, about how he operates, about how he works? Uh, and so here's what I think John is saying by putting this particular story in. This one healing is a foreshadowing of what's to come. To put that another way, these are the first fruits. Did you know what the first fruits are? They're the first apples of the season. You know, the, the first oranges to, to come out after the orange blossoms. The first ears of corn, the first heads of grain. Uh, they sprout up before the rest of the crop. They're, they're the ones that come up. Uh, it's the first fruits, and it gives the farmer hope that they're going to have a full harvest, that the whole field will be ripe. And the first fruits say the harvest is coming, just a few more days, just a few more weeks, and the fields will be ripe. That's what the first fruits are. Now remember it said back in verse 1 that Jesus was in Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. And because John doesn't write chronologically, he doesn't actually tell us which one, and people debate which one it is. Um, and there's all these theories. Scholars love to debate which festival is he talking about. And I'm not going to bore you with all the different theories out there from all the different scholars. And some of them are quite fun and interesting. Like, let's just swap chapters 5 and chapter 6 and we'll invert them. And then it'll all make sense. Forget all that. Here's my theory. There were several smaller festivals that happened in Jerusalem throughout the year. So there were three that every single person, every single male of a certain age uh, was required to go. But then there are all these smaller festivals that happen throughout the year, um, ones that probably went by without a mention. Most of those festivals were what, were what are called first fruits festivals. The farmers would actually bring the first fruits of their harvest to the temple as a sacrifice, as a celebration to give thanks to God for the harvest. And so here's what I think, and I would not die on this hill, um, but I think Jesus is in town for a first fruits festival. And I think that's why it doesn't chronologically fit with what all the scholars want it to fit. And so get this, in my view, everyone is in town thinking about and celebrating first fruits, the first of many. And I think what Jesus is doing here is a first fruits healing. He doesn't heal everyone. But with this particular healing, he is saying that there is a harvest of healing coming. This one's just the first fruits. You want to know what it's going to look like? When everyone is healed, it looks like this. And so this is only a picture of what's to come. This is something to give us hope for the day when all those who are trusting in Christ will be healed from every sickness and every disease and every deformity and every injury and every mental impairment, every depression, all of it healed ultimately forever. A final, ultimate get up, pick up, and walk for everyone. But what I think John's trying to tell us theologically here is that in this life, not everyone will be healed. Only some. Only a first fruits. So what does that mean for us today? Should we pray for healing? Should we expect healing? 100% yes. 100% yes. We should always pray for both the first fruits and the harvest. Always pray for the first fruits and the harvest. 
And so one thing I think we can pray for, for those who are sick, those who are impaired, who are broken, who are lacking in some way, is, is this. God, heal this person today. Let this here be a first fruits of the healing that is to come. But if not, then God, I trust in your ultimate healing for this person in the life to come. And I think it's okay, and I think it's more than right to pray that way, to ask God for a first fruits healing, to ask him to heal. But then also to remember that Jesus didn't heal everyone when he was here. And he doesn't heal everyone today. And I realize it's really hard to hold that tension. But that's the tension we're given. That's the tension that Jesus gave us on that day. Hundreds of people who needed healing needed one. Because one day, for those who have placed their faith in him, for those who know him, for those who are trusting in him, there is an ultimate healing. The promise of Revelation 21, which we refer to quite often around here, is that when we see him face to face in the next life, that is the time when there is no more sickness, no more crying, no more mourning, no more pain. Or it says the old things have passed away and behold, the new things are here. And so if you're still tracking with me, first, Jesus gives this man rest from his loneliness Second, he gives him rest from his impairment, which is a first fruits, a picture of what's to come. And then part three, and very briefly, he gives him rest from his punishment. Um, What happens next is uh, the man gets into trouble. He gets into some pretty serious trouble. Uh, And as I was reading this, it reminded me of what happened to me on more than one occasion when I visited the Czech Republic. I mentioned that a few weeks ago. I used to go um, once or twice a year. I did it for like 10 years. Uh, I'd go to the Czech Republic Uh, to teach English and to introduce people to Christianity because they didn't know anything really of Christianity. Um, But I would always get myself as a cultural outsider into pretty serious trouble, um, constantly getting in trouble. Um, And this happened to me multiple times over the years, but I'll never forget the first time it happened. Uh, There was a group of about 10 of us, and we're riding, we're in the city of Prague, and we're riding on a tram to get from one side of town to the other, probably to like catch a train to go somewhere. And there's 10 of us, and we're all excited to be there. You know, we're in a new place, a new city. We've never been there before, and so we're just excited. We're talking about what's going on. We're laughing. We're being loud. Um, Now, the thing you have to know uh, about the Czech Republic, it's in Central Europe, and for many years, it was actually under communist Russia. And it wasn't really uh, that long ago, um, you know, especially in the early 2000s when I was going, uh, it wasn't that long ago um, that they were under communism. And it was common while they were under communism Uh, for a neighbor, for a stranger in a restaurant, on a bus, or in a train, or a tram, to listen in on your conversation um, and uh, listen for any way that you might be against the Communist Party. And if so, then they would turn you into the secret police, and then you might just disappear. That was a common practice that happened. And so for 40 years, while they're under communism, if you were out in public, if you're walking on the streets, if you're on a bus, on a train, you're eating in a restaurant, you would only ever speak in very hushed tones, very quiet almost a whisper, because you didn't want people next to you to hear what you're saying. Kind of like you can't hear what I'm saying right now. And so here we are, 10 loud Americans <laughs> on a tram, having multiple conversations, some people engaged in three conversations at once, yelling across a car, and an elderly woman, who I'm sure is a very sweet woman, Um, If I ever see her again, I'd like to give her a hug. But she walked right up to me, got in my face, and just goes, shh. 
<laughs> now, all she was doing was enforcing the general customs of her culture. And so, of course, I quieted down. I encouraged everyone else to do the same. This is like what happens to this man. He is confronted with breaking a pretty serious custom. In fact, at this point, it had become a law um, with the potential penalty of death. Because remember, it's the Sabbath, and you're not allowed to do any work on the Sabbath. Uh, and the, um, one of those things that you were prohibited from doing was carrying anything. And so here's this man. He's been healed. He hasn't walked in 38 years, so he's walking now for the first time. And he's picked up his mat, and he's carrying it. And somebody sees him and does a shh to him. But it's much more serious. Uh, because what they do is they actually bring him in front of some of the religious leaders um, and he gets in some pretty serious trouble. Um, and he tells them that he was healed, and the guy who healed him told him to do it, but he doesn't know who the guy is. He, he never got the name, because it says that Jesus actually did this, and then he kind of slipped away. Um, and so he doesn't know who it is that healed him. And so they do end up letting him go, which is good. Um, and then Jesus finds him again, and then look at what Jesus says to him in verse 14. He says, see, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Now, this is very difficult to interpret uh, what he means when he says that. It, it could go one of uh, several ways. One way is that uh, possibly the man was paralyzed because uh, he was sinning in some way and the sin is what caused him to get injured. Uh, like maybe he got angry, got in a fight and was injured in the fight and that's how. So that's one way you could take it. Another way is to say that Jesus is saying, uh, hey, if you don't, actually come to faith right now, you know, actually come to me right now, uh, it might be that God will bring something else into your life to wake you up to your need of salvation. So he could mean that when he's saying it. We don't really know what he means by it, but look at what happens next. It says, the man then went and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who healed him. And then Jesus is the one who's in trouble. And it says they began to persecute him. And they persecute him for two reasons. One, because he healed on the Sabbath. He did something. But then secondly, when they ask him about it, he says that I and my father are always at work. In other words, he's making a claim to be the son of God. He's making a claim of divinity. And so he's in some pretty serious trouble for these two things. Uh, and actually, from this story on through the rest of John's gospel, every time Jesus comes into contact with the religious leaders, they want to kill him. So it starts here. Now, here's what I think is extraordinary about this, and yet another major theme that runs through the entire Bible. The man who was healed and then brought in for punishment for breaking the Sabbath. Did you notice what happens here? Jesus also gives him rest from his punishment. In other words, Jesus then takes the attention off of this man and put it on himself. Like, I almost wonder if Jesus came to him to tell him who he was, that the man would go and tell them that it was Jesus so that he could take the eye off this, this poor man who'd been healed and the eye could go on Jesus himself. He does it so that Jesus can take the punishment. Now that is a theme that runs through the entire Bible. Isaiah 53 is maybe one of the, the best places that talks about it. In Isaiah 53 in verse 4 it says, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And then listen to this. The punishment that brought us peace, shalom, was on him. 
and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is the very heart of the Christian gospel. The very heart of what it is to be a Christian is for Jesus to give you rest from the punishment that you deserve. Do you see that in Isaiah 53, verse 5? The punishment that brought us peace, shalom, was on him. And that is what Jesus is doing here for this man. That's the third way that he deals with this man. He gives him rest from his punishment. He takes the eye off him and puts it on himself. And this is what Jesus Christ does for every person who makes him the center of their life, who makes him their salvation, not just their helper, but their salvation. That when Jesus Christ was on the cross, he took all the attention of the wrath of God off of you and put it on himself. And so he gives rest from punishments. So this is Jesus' method with this man. He gives him Shabbat Shalom, rest and wholeness. And if you're like me, then that means Jesus is good news. That coming to him is good news. Bringing our loneliness, bringing our impairments, bringing our punishment to him is good news. Because only Jesus can give us that rest. Only Jesus can give us that wholeness, that peace. And not only that, it means that then if we've received that, we can be bringers of rest and wholeness to our neighbors, to our neighborhood, to our city, to our workplaces to our families, that what we've received is what we can also give. And so let's be that too. Let's bring rest, particularly to people's loneliness. And then let's bring people to Jesus who can give them true rest from their impairments, from their punishment. You know, there's all this stuff that happened in history during the plagues, and it was the Christians who who cared for people during those epidemics. And what of the news five years from now, ten years from now, is that the loneliness epidemic ended in America because Christians brought rest into people's loneliness. What if we did that? This story seems to say we can. And that's what we have to offer. So let's be that. Let me pray. Our Father, we thank you for this story. We thank you for the impact that it had on this one man for his life that was transformed. And we give you thanks that in it we can see something of ourselves and something of the way that you bring rest to us in our loneliness, in our impairments, in our punishment. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.